Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast Halloween Edition. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's get to it. So listen, it's the Halloween edition of the uh, the podcast, and I do this every year because Halloween apparently rolls around every year, and I have such fond memories of Halloween as a kid, and sometimes I think, what else could I possibly talk about uh, when I do this podcast? And mostly it really comes down to my dad. Um, he, this is a guy who, I, I wish you could have known him. I'm trying to paint the best picture I can. He was a... a, a banker basically you know like a guy with the tie on every day and the white starch shirt and the jacket and he'd leave for work at eight fifteen every day and come back at dinner at five o'clock on the nose and walk back and forth to the bank and by all accounts just a regular banking guy but two months out of the year he would start to transform and he that transformation also included our house so when my dad was a kid growing up it was all about monsters and space movies and things like that. And huge fan of science fiction. I never really connected with much of the science fiction, even though I'm a, a, a fan of all the movies when they come out. But I, he was really steeped in this stuff. And I think it, part of it comes out of the 50s, right? When everybody's worried about, you know, the nuclear bomb dropping and, and uh, you know, all the movies that came out at that time, like The Blob and stuff like that. So it was, he was, you know, in that stuff. I, I, not so much for me. But I had a great admiration, and still do to this day, for his efforts on his passion, which was this scaring the shit out of people, basically. And I'm not sure where the whole Dracula thing came in for him. I know he was a huge fan of Bela Lugosi and later on Christopher Lee for the Hammer films. But somewhere in all of this, my dad started building horror houses. Uh, when he was a kid, just in his room, he'd start there and build little mazes and stuff like that. Nobody was in there except him. It was fascinating. I remember him telling me this many, many, many years later. I'm like, Dad, how'd all this start? He's kind of pulling the puzzle pieces together for me. And when my mom and he got married, I know that she knew that at some point he's going full Dracula. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And the house that they bought in 1966, 4252 West Berto Avenue in Chicago, was the perfect setup for his horror exploits, put it that way. Big Victorian house, uh, right on an alley. Uh, th there was a rear entrance for the, for the basement. And part of me says, you know, when they walked through with the realtor, he must have said, this would be the perfect place to build the ultimate haunted house. Because you could have people come off the alley, wait in the yard, and then walk in the basement, and then come out in the house, and then walk straight out front. I mean, it was like built just for that. And it was a great place. I think of Berto Street often. Uh, it was uh, built in the 1800s, one of the first homes in that old Irving Park area, if you're familiar with that at all in Chicago. And it's been sold many times since then, but my dad and mom bought it in 1966, and I remember him telling me he paid $18,210 for it. And I think the last time it sold or resold, it was up over seven hundred fifty grand. And they've added a, a garage and things like that. But when we got there, we had bought it from a woman who was a widow, 
and she had two daughters and it was time for her to sell it. And it was a beautiful place. It had like stained glass all over and it was really, really quite something. And prior to that, we were living with my grandmother over on Fletcher Street, right across from Riverview Amusement Park, which had closed in 1967. But that wasn't a bad deal either. It was this big two-story kind of, um, uh, it was a house for sure, but it was too flat. It was enormous. But uh, we moved over to Berteau and it was my mom and dad's first home for themselves. And my mom was uh, A1 when it comes to decorating and, and way ahead of her time in fashion and things like that. And as I said, my dad was the steadfast banker. So probably starting not long after we moved in, maybe 1967, the, the Halloween of 67, my dad gathered the cousins together. My uncle Rich, who was uh, in between stints in Vietnam and um, a guy named Sam, who was uh, connected at that time to uh, a, my aunt and uh, Rich's brother, Bob, and a couple other cousins, and then the guy across the street. And they all came together and started taking everything out of the basement and building mazes. And in order to build the mazes, and my dad was a frustrated architect. Always wanted to be an architect, never happened for him. But he would, he could draw and lay out this, this haunted house. And I still have framed some regular lined notebook paper that he, you know, laid out the whole basement, where the monsters were, where people would go, what it would cost. And uh, I have this image of him at the bank, supposedly working on, you know, accounts. And, you know, he's shuffling papers around. At the same time, he's working on this this Halloween stuff. It was great. And I have that framed here in my studio. It's just a great reminder of my dad. And for over 20 years, from probably 66 to 86, 87, we had this Halloween blowout every year. And every year it got a little bit more elaborate and there's more and more people. And, you know, part of me thought I could take you through the whole maze and things like that, but it's almost like secondary to the, I want to say this, like the input of people who got involved. I, they, they were so drawn to this, this effort that it became such a big deal in their lives. The, my mom and dad have, would have a party for the adults after the whole two-week run of the haunted house was done. And they'd come over and hang out and stuff like that. It was, a, it was a costume party. But for the two weeks prior to Halloween, and sometimes on Halloween itself, depending on what day it fell on, I'm not kidding, hundreds of people would line up in the alley, waiting in line in some of the worst weather in October um, that you can imagine to pay a quarter to go in and get the shit scared out of them. And I found that in itself was just so great. And the, the effort that my dad put into Halloween uh, was, was unlike anything else I'd ever seen. Because again, this is a guy who the rest of the year, he'd cut the grass, had a couple projects here and there. But when it got towards late August into early September, I knew the transformation was coming. And to watch him go through that transformation... I, I have this Grundig stereo in my studio as I just kind of make a left turn here for a second. I have this Grundig stereo in my, my studio. It was my mom and dad's wedding gift to each other from 1958. It doesn't work anymore. I mean, if I spent some cash and I can find the right guy to, to get it running, I, could, I suppose I could get it to work. But I just keep it as a, as a reminder piece. And on the top of that, there's a bunch of pictures of my family and stuff. They're all gone, of course. And there's my mom and dad uh, and, and vintage, you know, black and white picture. And as I'm telling this to you, I'm looking at them and thinking how much fun they had doing this. And it was just, they were kind of the best tag team to pull it off. 
and to, to come home from school in those years after grammar school and eventually high school and to see all my cousin's cars parked out front, I knew they were working in the basement. And I used to get the biggest smile on my face. You know, you're at school all day and I'm coming home and it's kind of like those, you know, late September days as they started working on the basement. It's getting a little rainy, a little darker, a little cooler. And you come around the corner, there's leaves on the ground, man. And and there's, you know, Bobby and Rich's cars are there and Uncle Mick's cars there. And I can see Mr. Stitch from across the street walking over to help out. And just great memories. Even more so than the actual event itself was knowing that they were all together and doing their thing and that they enjoyed it. And I think for me, knowing my dad really didn't like his job, but like a lot of dads did it because he had to do it. I think that was the, the big get for me in all this, that at least for a little while during the year, he got to have an alter ego of sorts. Now, it was the Prince of Darkness, I'll give you that, but he was happy, and it made him really happy, and it made him happy and made my mom happy. You know how that works, and vice versa. And my dad took Dracula to the nth degree. He went to his dentist and had fangs made. Uh, he'd just come up short for getting, uh, I think at one point he was going to try and get contact lenses, but they, he couldn't put them in his eyes. They hurt. Uh, so he kind of worked without those. My mom rivaled any Hollywood makeup artist with this stuff. She had this bone white face makeup. He'd put those teeth in. Now, they, imagine this. So I'm probably, you know, 10, 12 years old when they first started doing this. And I remember looking in his, in their bedroom and my dad's sitting on a chair and he'd take his glasses off, and my mom would slick his hair back with the Brill Cream Man. It smelled really good. And she'd start to work on him, and she'd get his, all the edges done, and then she'd paint this, you know, the point in front, they call it the widow's peak, where his hair was at. And he had a kind of natural hair length like that anyway. And by the time she was done with him, and he stuck those fangs in, I didn't recognize the old man. And that was the whole point. And he would look at me, and it would scare the shit out of me, and it was my dad, and I knew it. And so... Thinking about that on this Halloween, I'm realizing that's over 50 years ago, half a century. And it, the, the memories are so vivid to me about all that went around getting the preparation done for that haunted house. And we'd go down and do a final check before the doors opened, make sure all the monsters were in place. And if you, you know, my, my cousin Rich, who had survived Vietnam twice, came home highly decorated Marine, he was the wolf man. Or a werewolf, depending on how you look at it, I guess. There's a difference. And he had gone out and got this, like, yak hair and spirit gum. And he would he stuck the hair right to his face, so much so that, like, he had a hard time getting the hair off his face to go to work. Just should have left it as, like, a big beard. Uh, but he was at the bottom of the stairs. He was the very last monster that, that, that you'd see. And he was, like, chained up on the wall with these plastic chains that look real. But, of course... He would always break loose and just create havoc. And then, and as you entered on the other end of the things, when you'd walk into the basement, it was Frankenstein's laboratory, which was an incredible creation by my Uncle Hal. Now, I say the term uncle a little loosely because some of these guys weren't really related to me. They were my dad's friends growing up, and they were all uncle so-and-so to me. But my Uncle Hal was an incredible artist, and he drew the most amazing uh, scenes inside this part of our basement that was built by cardboard boxes that were that had been cut and pasted and tacked down and they really just created this amazing laboratory. He had to walk through a door to get into it and there was glow paint everywhere. So when they had the black lights on, everything seemed to be 3D. 
this stuff was, in my opinion, so far ahead of its time, for the time, that I think it added a great ambiance to the effort to scare people. And I remember there was a Mattel vroom vroom motor that you could attach to your bike back in the 60s. It was a little plastic thing and it made this noise. So I remember them taking that motor off my bike and then they got the electronic football game, you know, where you put the guys on there and they all end up in the corner. And they took that and they combined those as a, as a noise to create Frankenstein's monster coming alive. And they got the seven up bulbs next to his neck that were flickering and stuff and a big switch on the wall. And I'm telling you, it was just, the creativity was incredible. When it came to Frankenstein's monster, there was three that I remember. There was Mr. Stitch from across the street who I mentioned before. He, he bought right into all this stuff. And the Stitches were, were one of our great neighbors. The Stitches were across the street. The Connors were right next to us. The Gerkies were right on the other side of us. And Mr. Stitch like volunteered to be Frankenstein. And he was pretty good. He had a rubber mask on and stuff like that. It was, it was okay. The next Frankenstein got a little bit bigger. So Mr. Stitch probably at the time was, you know, wasn't a huge guy, maybe six foot tall, but to the kids, he looked enormous. The next guy was Kenny Sauerwein. And Kenny Sauerwein was probably 6'2", 6'3", and about 260 pounds. Big, big guy. And they got his makeup jacked up a little bit more, and he went through the whole, I mean, he really got into it. And then he retired from it, and finally they got the biggest of them all, my friend, the late, great Al Walschlager Jr., who I played high school football with, and Al was 6'5". And they stuck him in there against this board with all this stuff going on. And now it was really getting pretty threatening. Dr. Frankenstein started out as my dad's friend, Tom Marins, the late, great Tom Marins, who, <laughs> this guy, I remember him as this short, bald, round guy who put on this wig of sorts that, that glowed in the dark, and he had glasses on. He was kind of a, a fun guy anyway, so he fit right into the role. He had a smock on and the whole deal he got from his dentist. And he would come in and give the whole spiel about, you know, bringing the monster alive, and oh my gosh, they just, he was there, for, had to be at least eight, nine, ten years out of this, if not longer. And after Tom passed away, another childhood friend of mine, Jerry Olive, he stepped in. He's another guy. There was this role was made for him. So at one point, Jerry and Albert, who were great friends, were working together, scaring the crap out of people when they walked into the basement into Frankenstein's laboratory. It was just, it was just fascinating and wonderful to watch everybody pitch in. And then they'd leave that and go out into the maze of horrors. And that maze changed over the years as well. Rich's brother, Bob, was a, a caveman. I mean, a really good caveman. He, and he somehow rigged this rubber spider up to the ceiling of the basement. And when he'd open his mouth to scream at people and the light would go on, the, the spider would fly out of his mouth. <laughs> And people would just, I would just cringe in horror because you never knew it was coming. When the slasher movies got to be a thing in the in the late seventies, early eighties, we have a friend of mine, Mike Aaron, decided he was going to take a, a circular saw. He took the blade out, but he took a circular saw. And he he was a go hockey goalie, so he was used to being on his knees and and bending a leg behind him and stuff like that. So he had a, created a fake leg, and when they came down to his end of the hallway, he would again, press a, a little button and a light would go on and he would take the saw and cut his leg off and you know, throw it at him and other verbal assaults and things like that. One time we, we found a, uh, an elk hide from one of the neighbors who was a hunter, put it out the, in the garbage. It was out there for about a week 
And we took the elk hide, rolled it up, and made like it was Bigfoot in the corner. The thing stunk the high heaven. You could smell it upstairs. My mom was not real happy about that one. But, but that was effective. And my buddy Al, who uh, at the time, he still isn't a very tall guy, but we found a, a way to put him in like a coffin structure. And he laid there. And a lot of this stuff was done with lighting, right? So if he pressed a button in the coffin, the light would go on over him. And he would lay there with a real wooden stake held in his hands, dressed as like a mini vampire. Mini being Al's like 5'8". And uh, at one point, that worked and scared the crap out of people until someone tried to impale him with the stake when he got up. And then we took the stake prop away. It just went on and on. I can remember so many kids and adults signing to the ghost book in blood, you know, red pen, and uh, paying a quarter to get in all that money, of course, got reinvested in the next year's Halloween efforts. And this is, again, so far before all this stuff that goes on now where they pay, you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks to get in these haunted asylums and stuff, which is all well and good. But I just think about how Halloween got embedded to me as something that would brought people together. The neighborhood kids couldn't wait for it. The neighborhood grownups couldn't wait for it. My dad's uh, friends couldn't wait for it. And to see that as, as something that brought so many people into the same space and place is something that's never left me. There are not very many mementos left from that time. I, I mentioned this little framed piece of paper I have with my dad's handwriting on it that showed him you know, the outline of the, of the basement and all kind of stuff. I found the saw that Mike used to cut his leg off with years ago in my sister's attic. And uh, I gave it to Mike last year. It still had flecks of paint on it from when he was sawing his leg off. And um, my dad had this cape that he wore every Halloween that my mom had made from a pair of curtains. We live right near the highway, so she bought these black, heavy, dark curtains to put in my room so it would be quiet. Well, eventually, one day I walk in and some of the curtains are missing. And she made this cape for my dad with the big cowl neck and all that kind of stuff. And when my dad passed away in 2004, uh, we put all of that in there with him. We put the, the ghost book in with him, and we put the cape in with him uh, when he was cremated. And it was, it was, to us, to my sister and I, it was like the perfect way to send him off because it was such a, a, a grand and great part of his life. The other thing that is, is connected to this is, a, is an album called The Chilling, Thrilling Sounds of the Haunted House. It's a Disney album. And it came out in the 60s. And you got to remember back, at least for this purposes, we, we had to have some background music somehow or some kind of sound effect. And so what my dad would do is take one of the big giant Sears speakers and stick it in the heating vent and then put this record on. And it would, you know, it was, it, there's 12 tracks on there, six on the front, six on the back. And it would play itself through and somebody would have to turn it over and play itself through. So for hours, four or five hours every night, two weeks before Halloween, it would just play over and over and over and over again. A woman named Laura Oshler does the voiceover work on this. I don't know whatever happened to Laura Oshler. Never heard anything about her except I remembered her name from that album. And so probably five years ago, I was at a, uh, uh, a yard sale and I found the album. Pretty good shape. And I was just amazed. I was like, I have not seen this for 45 years. And I remember my dad dropping the needle and then my mom having to drop the needle and I probably had to drop the needle. And it just it was just this soundtrack that I could not get out of my head. So I'm getting ready to cut off for today. I just wanted to, to do this in remembrance of my dad, uh, who I miss terribly. 
you know, I, outside of the Dracula stuff and my mom. But when my dad passed, I became an adult orphan. And something changes when your parents are both gone. And I have friends of mine who recently lost one or other of their parents. I have a couple of friends, but I still have, their mom and dad are still around. And they know what's coming. And for me, when my dad passed, it took about a decade for me to kind of situate myself and get connected really to the person I'd become without them. And as the years have rolled by, decades have piled up, the memories of them have not gotten fainter, they've gotten clearer. What has gotten fainter a little bit are their voices in my head, what they sounded like, you know, and, and how they laughed and things like that. That's, that's kind of faded a bit. When I closed my eyes just a couple of days before Halloween and knowing I have a bunch of stuff out front that includes a skeleton and, you know, a couple ghosts and the pumpkins and everything, my little attempt to, uh, to do that, uh, carry on the tradition. Long ago, I stopped. I, haunted houses were my dad's thing. I participated, had fun, but I've never once felt like I needed to build one. But it's, it's an interesting thing that this time of year, I remember him so much because it made him so happy. And in the end, really, that's what it's all about for me. So I'm going to drop the needle in remembrance of my dad on the chilling, thrilling sounds of the haunted house. And I want to thank you for listening to this little ramble about a guy who uh, I miss very much and about a, a holiday that um, we spend $10 billion a year on now. And back 50 years ago, I could have never imagined that Halloween, quite frankly, would become the industry that it is. So this is from the chilling, thrilling sounds of the haunted house. It's just a little send-off for you uh, for spending time with me today. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Happy Halloween. (laughs) You are a bold and courageous person, afraid of nothing. High on a hilltop near your home, there stands a dilapidated old mansion. Some say the place is haunted, but you don't believe in such myths. One dark and stormy night, a light appears in the topmost window in the tower of the old house. You decide to investigate, and you never return.